Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code WELCOME to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code WELCOME at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code WELCOME. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show... You know, showbiz, and not to be cliche or stereotype, but you've got, in many cases, a lot of ambitious, competitive, eccentric people. (laughs) You put them in a room and give them a deadline, and that can, you know, uh, lead to a lot of clashes. And one of the things people make fun of about Jon Stewart in the book, uh, people who worked with him at The Daily Show, is he would wear the same thing in the office every day. You know, a pair of work boots, a pair of chinos, same t-shirt, same Mets hat. And while they, you know, rag him about essentially being a slob, there was, not to get cheaply psychological, also something John was communicating in that, that he was simplifying a lot of the extraneous stuff and getting to work. He was showing up at nine every day, ready to work. It wasn't about... Um, quote unquote the um, the trappings of show business it was about let's okay today is today and, and what was in the news and what's funny about it and what's our point of view and, and so on exactly Steve Carell uh, did a famous piece on the Straight Talk Express bus with John McCain right in the 99 campaign and he asked a series of really softball questions you know what kind of tree would you be that kind of thing and McCain who's got a sense of humor plays along and then Carell asks a, a policy question. He says, you know, uh, you're a strident opponent of pork barrel spending, yet when you had the uh, Senate Commerce Committee, you dedicated more money to individual districts and pork barrel projects than anyone in history. And McCain freezes. There's a real deer-in-the-headlights moment, which Carell bursts by saying, oh, I don't even know what those words mean, and they go back to laughing. Well, okay, in that part, I I highlighted that exact story in the book um, because what if he did not pull back from it? So I'm just curious, like, I always think, so this is an oral history of The Daily Show, and just before the podcast starts, I always think people must think these are easy books to write because it's like other people are giving you the words and you're just going around and like collecting the words. But I imagine it must be incredibly difficult to get like, I don't know, the 60 or so people you got to tell a story that has an arc to it. Yes, and I don't know how I say it without patting myself on the back, but it was hard. (laughs) I'd never done it before. The deadline was crazy short. 
I started in September of uh, 2015. Oh, oh, hold on a second. Sure. Actually, we're capturing it. Started in September 2015. Yeah. Just like yesterday. Yeah, John, they didn't want me doing any of the reporting, interviewing until he'd after, until he'd left the show officially. Yeah. So I started in 2015. Which makes September. sense, I guess. He doesn't want people like uh, to flavor his last few months, like if somebody didn't exactly. like him or whatever. Exactly. And he was and is incredibly uh, careful, respectful of not getting in Trevor Noah's way. Uh-huh. You know, he likes Trevor a lot. And he didn't, you know, obviously John's exit was going to overshadow it regardless, but he didn't want, you know, this book in some minor way interfering with Trevor's launch or with all the people who stayed from John's staff, you know, who had a very busy transition in getting the new show up and running. So started September 2015. The original deadline was April 2016. So essentially, what is that, seven months? Yeah. Uh, I get to April, I meet all the deadlines, the book's in pretty good shape, and the publisher says, ah, we knew this was unrealistic all along, keep keep going. <laughs> Which was fine, because the extra time uh, was very helpful. But then the turnaround time between the time you finished the book and the time it was published was very short. Yes. Uh, you know, technology, whatever, they're able to actually do the mechanical stuff faster all the time. I didn't... St- the final rewriting was early October. The book came out November 22nd. Oh, yeah, because there was stuff even from like a few weeks ago. Exactly. In the book. Yeah. But to backtrack, I did slightly more than 200 interviews because some people I interviewed more than once. There are 114 different people quoted in the book. And yeah, assembling it in some semi-coherent narrative was really difficult. And 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 it's not like everybody had the same cohesive view of the show and John Stewart. You had people who were angry at each other in this book. Yes, and I wanted it to be warts and all, you know, as the publisher certainly did. Um, people, you know... <laughs> It was never going to be an SNL oral history. There was not nearly enough sex and drugs and death in the Daily Show experience. But there were people who got on each other's nerves. It's smart, opinionated people. There was fights, substantive fights, personality differences. And people were pretty blunt about that. Yeah, sure. There was, you know, you had Lewis Black, Madeline Smithberg. Right. You know, all these people... Going back and forth on each other, you know, with some with their own resentments and their own kind of grievances. Yeah, and and there's that part of it, people being honest and upfront. But I mean, as as a writer, the thing you said that's been in some of the reviews that makes me really happy is the book seems conversational. You know, even though I did more than two hundred discrete interviews. You have people in a dialogue well, yeah, or yeah. A back and forth. I, I was curious about that, and we'll we'll, we'll get into the weeds of that. Um, I just want to introduce you as Chris Smith, who wrote an excellent book, which I've already even recommended in my in my book club. But it's the Daily Show, the book, an oral history of the show. It was a, it was a great book. John Stewart does the introduction. Chris, how's it going? Excellent. Thank you for having me. It's basically, as you said, you interviewed 114 people, including a lot of uh, interviews with John Stewart. Correct. About um, kind of the rise from 
When did it start? 1996? The show itself started in 1996 with Craig Kilborn as host, and right. he was in charge two and a half years, and John Stewart took over January 99. And your your book pretty much focuses on the John Stewart year. I mean, it, all, it all, pretty much only focuses on the John Stewart years. You, you have an intro with Craig Gil. I mean, you have a, how it began and the Craig Kilborn, but, but you're focusing on on several things which I think are interesting that I want to ask you about each one. One is kind of the 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 rise of, or, or really the full expression of John Stewart's amazing talent, because I don't think before the before the Daily Show, um, we everybody had a sense this guy is a great comedian, and you know he had kind of a cult following on his MTV show. He had a further cult following. I was at HBO when he was on the Larry Sanders show, oh, and terrific. I even did the Larry Sanders website back in like 1996 or seven or whatever. And you know John Stewart was always. That was a great show because it was like it was as if it was a real talk show, but it was behind the scenes. Yes. And John Stewart often played the guest host on Larry Sanders' talk show, yeah. and so you got a sense of how he would be as a talk show host. Yeah. And so you kind of had the sense who's going to give this guy finally a chance. So then you see Comedy Central and The Daily Show gave him a chance, but no one knew, even he didn't know if he would fail or not. He had already failed at a couple of different things. His movies were mediocre. We all knew he was talented, but no one knew how much. And so there was that. Then there was the rise of this show as a platform for talent, uh, where you had Steve Carroll, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, so many other people. And then finally, you, you kind of, uh, you know, you described the story of how Late Night, or how, or how The Daily Show redefined Late Night and the role of comedy in news reporting mm -hmm. and i think so these three stories sort of interweave together throughout the book and it's very interesting man i'm so happy to hear you say that because while i don't know 70 percent of the people are daily show staff writers producers performers john stewart i really want one of my goals was really to connect the book the internal parts of how the daily show was made to the context of the times I mean, we all lived through it, so we know about this, but one of the fun or interesting realizations I came to in reporting the book was, can we curse on, on your podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything goes. Is just how much shit happened in the world between 1999 and 2015. For a show then that was getting closer and closer to being kind of this quasi-news show, how do they insert comedy into the shitstorm that was happening, whether it was 9-11 or the financial crisis? Or, like, given that the bias of The Daily Show was kind of, let's, let's call it New York liberal Democrat, how do you be funny in a... Barack Obama administration. That's a that's almost as much a challenge. Yes, and there, those are a lot of threads that people talk about within the book. You know, starting somewhat at the beginning, yes, you're exactly on target. And John, there's a quote from John in the book where he says, you know, in retrospect, people say, oh, yeah, of course, John Stewart in The Daily Show was going to work. But a lot had to go right. A lot was luck. A lot was hiring the right people. A lot was tremendous hard work on the part of John and, you know, dozens of other people. Well, let's let's start with there because I think, you know, and this is not a slight against Craig Kilborn. He does fine. Different you know, guy. He's done yeah. fine since then. He, he, you know, in the Daily Show format was just starting. He probably didn't really know what to do with it. It had a very small audience. So, so it, was, it was a little, let's, and you even described it, it was a little sillier. It was more of like, let's do pretend news as if we were a news show and we'll make it silly. 
John, bit by bit, and we could kind of go through it bit by bit, he changed it to being this very insightful, interesting show about hypocrisy, not only in his the subject matter, which are the, the news that's happening, but hypocrisy among the media that covers that subject matter, you know, hypocrisy in the media itself. Exactly. And, and using the format of like... Um, you know, he started off with the Bush versus Bush, where you have kind of like video of Bush here and video of Bush four years earlier saying completely opposite things and debating. But then he took that in the media and constantly and just like, well, did the media really say this? And you have all the media saying the exact opposite. Yep. So, so again, how did how did John Stewart himself evolve? Why was he the perfect choice for this? Who tell us about John Stewart and his talent? Sure. You know, uh, he's a guy who, you know, had a sort of upper middle-ish class upbringing in New Jersey, went to William and Mary, you know, kind of came into comedy sideways. He wasn't w- sure exactly what he was going to do after college. And Was he stand-up first? I actually don't remember. Yes. And then, you know, as a lot of comics do, wrote for other shows and other people, uh, had an eventually pretty successful stand-up career going had a uh, couple of gigs uh hosting. Oh, yeah, he was on Letterman. Yeah. Uh, a, a show called Short Attention Span Theater that was on MTV briefly, then the Jon Stewart show, um, which is where I first wrote about him and got to know him a little bit. Right, I read that article. So just to mention... You've been following him for 22 years. Like you, that article was 1994. Right, exactly. And I met you know John Stewart in 1993, and I said, "There's a instantly." I said, "There's a great book in this guy in 23 years." You know, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, but think about it. 1993 was kind of like an interesting year in comedy. You have all these comics that were beginning this alternative comedy scene. Not only John Stewart, but obviously Louis C.K. was beginning around then. Mark Maron. Yep. Uh, you know, Janine Garofalo was, yep. I think, maybe already starting to be in movies then. Yeah, Reality Bites was was filmed around yeah. then. Uh, she so, was on SNL briefly in that stretch. Yeah, yeah. So there was all there was there was kind of this this generation's now mainstream comics yeah. started then. Yeah. So, so again, what did you see in John Stewart that you didn't see necessarily in the others? Well, a couple of things, and I sh- I should have made this plain in the book. Uh, I tried hard to get Craig Kilborn to talk to me. He wouldn't, you know, decline politely. He's pretty much never talked about his Daily Show experience. I did get uh, some other key people, Liz Winstead, Madeline Smithberg, who were the co-creators of the show, and they talked about something interesting that people forget. The show certainly was sillier in that era and had much more of a celebrity news focus, but also had more of a local news parody focus. And this was a big difference when John came in in two ways. John, interestingly to me, never had a master plan, never had a blueprint of here's what I want The Daily Show to be, but he knew he wanted it to, in his phrase, punch up, that he wanted to take on targets of you know people who were in power, people who actually made the world work or, or not. So he wanted to get away from the local news. He wanted to get at politicians and, and mainstream media. When you say local news... Um it's it, it, there'd be like some guy raising you know seventeen foot pumpkins and they would make fun of it yeah. and a guy who replaces his teeth with driveway gravel and it was it could be very funny but kind of mean spirited at times so so, so why, why did I mean going into and even John Stewart even refers to it several times both in his introduction to the book which is kudos to you you got John Stewart to write the introduction to the book and in 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 the interviews. 
Um, he basically says he felt like this was his last chance, or as he put it, the president of show business would would fire him. Yeah, <laughs> and you, I mean, you do fascinating work on people's lives and career choices. And yes, at that point, you know, John had worked hard on his MTV show, for instance. But now he had some setbacks. How do you get over the disappointment of, like, he failed well, repeatedly. Yes, but it, it certainly it hurt and, it, you know, it knocked him down for a while. But he's a, he's a really interesting cat in the sense that he's always kept in mind, if I keep doing good work, it'll work out. If I go out and keep making my stand-up better, good things will happen. So he, maybe he had a sense, like... Um, uh, the back door, just in case none of these talk shows or TV shows or movies work out, the back door is I'll I'll be a great stand-up headliner and tour the country and yeah. make a lot of money that way. Yeah, and he had some disappointments. I mean, he went after and and didn't get picked. Uh, Conan O'Brien, you know, got picked for the job that John didn't get in late night. Um, so John said, "All right, well, I'm going to go and learn from other people." Shandling, you know, the the Sanders show. While in retrospect seems like great preparation for what John ended up doing on The Daily Show, you know, he went there to learn from smart and funny people like his friend Judd Apatow, who was, you know, the. Uh, was a writer for Shandling. Yeah. For the Larry Sanders Show. Now, l- let me ask you about that because the, the Larry Sanders Show wasn't really a talk show, it was just a fictional show about a talk show. Yes. So it's not like you learn the talk show business by being. On that show, you learn maybe the screenwriting business or yeah. you learn the HBO he, style of, of sitcom, but it was a sitcom. It wasn't a talk show. Yeah, and John, it's, you know, sadly, I could show you, you know, I had poster boards on my wall of the hundreds of people I wanted to interview, and Shandling was there, you know, next. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we lost him, I guess, about a year ago now. Yeah. And but you got John Apatow, which yes, is a huge get. Right. But John Stewart talks a great deal about what he learned pro and con from Shandling. Um, you know, the key thing, as John describes it, he learned, picked up from Shandling in that Larry Sanders experience was intent, point of view. You know, what is it we're trying to have this scene or this joke communicate? Um, and it was also, as it turned out, a a great lesson for John in how to manage people and not manage people. I mean, Judd Apatow talked to me about how in his Larry Sanders experience, you know, he would sit in his lunch break and read books on management because there was so much, in Judd's view, going wrong and so much unhappiness behind the scene on Larry. Yeah. Why is that? Because, again, I... I Gary could be a tough guy to work with. Gary Shandling? Yeah. But at the same time... Brilliant, no question. look Look at the platform for talent that developed there. I mean... Everybody from Judd Apatow, yeah. Bob Odenkirk, yeah. who was already a talented comedian beforehand, but yeah. but you know kind of really picked it up on the Larry Sanders show. Jeffrey Tambor, I never heard of before the Larry <laughs> Sanders show, and has become huge since he's oh, still huge. Fanta- so, fantastic, yeah. I mean, Arrested Development became one of the greatest right. shows. All of Judd Apatow's yeah. work has been great. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk, of course, Breaking Bad and Better Than Saul. Yeah. So 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 it seems like a lot of things went right with the Larry Sanders show. No question. And, you know, John took a lot from that experience and imported it to when he got to The Daily Show. Chiefly among it, you know, everything went towards the show being funny, certainly The Daily Show. But John also wanted to create a place where the staff uh, got along, where the staff functioned, where there wasn't the kind of toxicity that you 
often get in sitcoms or late night show environments. Well, I still don't understand like again like I think of a sitcom or or a late night show as just a fun funny environment. Maybe there's a, a certain stress like you have to come up with 20 new jokes a day. Yeah. Um so that could be stressful and and needs to be managed from the top down, but what's what's the toxicity that as you put it often appears there? Well, it's you know showbiz and not to be cliché or stereotype, but you've got in many cases, a lot of ambitious, competitive, eccentric people. <laughs> you put them in a room and give them a deadline, and that can, you know, uh, lead to a lot of clashes. And one of the things people make fun of about Jon Stewart in the book, uh, people who worked with him at The Daily Show, is he would wear the same thing in the office every day. You know, a pair of work boots, a pair of chinos, same T-shirt, same Mets hat, and while I, you know, rag him about essentially being a slob, there was, not to get cheaply psychological, also something John was communicating in that, that he was simplifying a lot of the extraneous stuff and getting to work. You so know, he was showing up at nine every day ready to work. It wasn't about, um, quote-unquote, the... Um, the trappings of show business, it was about let's, okay, today is today and, and what was in the news and what's funny about it and what's our point of view and, and so on. Exactly. And and uh, initially, it, it wasn't quite about that. I mean, he still had to deal with um, kind of the leftovers from the Craig Kilborn Daily Show. And again, not to take away from what yeah. Craig built there, it was just a different show. But um, when did when did John start having the courage to say, hey, I, my style of comedy is different. I, I need to start expressing a different kind of comedy. Yeah, almost really before he started, well, definitely before he started officially, he came to the Daily Show offices, met with the writers that he was going to inherit from the Kilbourne staff. And the dynamic in the Kilbourne years was very, very different. Craig essentially would come in and read from the prompter, which gave the writers and a couple of producers a huge amount of autonomy to create the show. But Craig also seems like, um, and this is a, a positive thing, he seems like crazy and funny enough that he would want to participate in in defining the humor of the show. Yeah, somewhat. Like you, you described to me his. Uh, you didn't describe to me the book. Described to me, so I'm saying. Sure, you. sure. Um, you described his interview with uh, MTV and his joke about <laughs> down. I mean, that was a joke about downtown Julie Brown, and it's very. It's a very dangerous, brave. It's joke a good to say joke, in, yeah. in an interview yeah. for to do a TV show. So it sounds like on just off the top of his head, he's. He's saying, I'm going to be crazy. Why didn't he take a more active role in managing the, the writers of The Daily Show? Uh, I, I don't think it's something he, you know, without talking to him, it's hard to say. It's, you know, informed speculation, talking to all the people who worked with him. That wasn't what he was interested in. He was interested more in the performance aspects of it than the vision, than the creation of the show. So when John comes in, who does have a real point of view, who for the personal reasons we talked about, you know, feels like this, if not a last chance, is something he really deeply cares about making work. He's going to take control of everything. He's got he, a lot of experience as a writer himself, and he got a tremendous amount of pushback from the inherited writers who felt like this is our show, we're succeeding. John laid down the law in a couple of, you know, profane meetings that got leaked to page six about, I'm in charge here. If you don't want to be here, fine, leave. 
But you know, it, it, that also strikes me as interesting that there would be that kind of conflict because obviously nobody would say to Letterman or Leno or Jimmy Fallon, hey, this is the way we do things at late night. You better follow along. I mean, if, if Letterman right. says, no, do it this way, they're going to do it that way. They're going to at least try it. Yeah, well, but you got to remember the John Stewart of, you know, 1988, 1999 is not the John Stewart of 2016. Right. So Comedy Central, even in those days, you know, when John came in, was still somewhat of a sketchy proposition. Cable, and this is one of the threads that I hope comes through in the book, how much the media world had changed over that period of time. Um, so both because of the internal dynamics, the writers not wanting to give up the power that they had, um, and the external dynamics that, you know, it's cable, nobody's really paying attention to what we're doing anyway, and John feeling like this is a last chance, I, I got to make this good. Well, it's, it's so funny you say that because the number of, and this is how basic cable then compares to podcasting now, uh, almost as many people will listen to this podcast as watch Craig Kilborn's The Daily Show. That's wild to think about. I mean, if John Stewart made The Daily Show put it to a whole new level, but that's a very special case. Yes. I mean, I still don't know if basic, if uh, cable channels in general get, I mean, they don't get the views that The Daily Show now currently gets. Right, and, you know, I describe it in the book. It was a media environment where when John took over where the big three nightly newscasts, ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, they were still pulling in 30 million viewers totally Like how many night. viewers So were... the world, uh, you know, we forget two, just as The Daily Show launched in 96, Fox News launches, MSNBC launches, and those became huge foils in the life of The Daily Show. So so, so, so looking at the environment, it seems like there's there's two things, there's, there's three things happening. One is there's Jon Stewart's kind of evolution as a comedian mm -hmm. and, and his continuing stand-up and, and so on. The other is you have all these new news shows that are going to have their own late-night offerings covering the news as they see it with their own point of views. Fox mm -hmm. had a point of view, MSNBC had a point of view. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, Leno and Letterman um, competing for, for late night. So how so did John go in there saying, I need to differentiate myself? Or did he go in there saying, I need to be, uh, I'm, I'm Letterman-esque, so I need to be like Letterman but better? Yeah, not quite. I mean, more, these are the things I care about. I care about the poli politics of the world. I care about the media. And then he got handed a gift, essentially, as he's shifting the show in a more substantive direction you get the 2000 presidential campaign. As he called it, Indecision 2000. Exactly. And that's when they started kind of making the making it look almost like a real news show covering the news. As exactly. As opposed to just, like you say, the local yeah. uh, local news. And, you know, it's it's inside baseball maybe, but it's, it's fascinating. John hired people specifically away from producers, away from 60 Minutes, away from ABC News, to give the show more of that look of a nightly evening newscast. Well, it, it's funny. So he, you say he hired people away from there. Did he also try to hire people away from Leno and Letterman? Uh, I mean, he, he, no, because, you know, those were still the big leagues and Daily Show, Comedy Central at that point didn't have that kind of juice. But he was, um, he must have been hiring for comedy because, look, you don't get a Steve Carroll and a Stephen Colbert from ABC News. He hired them away from the Dana Carvey show, <laughs> which, is, which is amazing 
if you look at the Dana Carvey show, A, Dana, at, you know, at least particularly at that time, was a well-known, talented comedian from SNL and, and movies and everything. And look at the staff on that show. Oh, my Louis God. Louis C.K. The writers, Steve, yeah. Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert. Uh, who else was on that show? Uh, the, the writers were, I'm blanking on the names, a bunch of guys who went on to write for The Simpsons, for so, News Radio. So why wasn't that show successful? I, you know, I didn't do enough homework. To, I don't know. Maybe it was ahead of its time, um, but it certainly had the talent to be really great. Well, well, you wonder, like, you know, but again, when, when Letterman and Leno were first going head-to-head, there was also Chevy Chase was trying to go head-to-head <coughs> with them. So just because someone's talented and a funny guy right. doesn't mean they're going to put in the work to be an everyday talk show right. host. Right, and, and it's important to remember, too, in that period of time, Political humor for Letterman, for Leto, was, you know, two minutes of the opening monologue, right? Or they'd have a politician on and do a fairly uh, friendly interview. The space that Jon Stewart and The Daily Show came to occupy was wide open because, uh, again, you know, we have MSNBC, Fox, and even more important, CNN, uh, particularly with the first Gulf War, demonstrating that there was a real audience for uh, news coverage in late night and John going after it in a way for 22 minutes a night as opposed to Leno or Letterman doing some, you know, throwaway Monica Lewinsky kind of jokes, that was uh, open territory. He didn't strategize it that way. It was more, you know, what John cared about himself and thought would be funny. But let's let's look at it in terms of strategy uh, almost from an entrepreneurial point of view. So he's going up against two heavy hitters at late, at late night, not to mention, you know, I guess Nightline and, and heavy hitters on the news side. Um, and uh, you kind of have to have an approach as an entrepreneur in a startup. Uh, am I going to try to be get everyone as my customer or am I going to, you know, there's a saying, if I try for everyone, I get nobody. And it seems like he... Uh, I'm going to borrow now from from Peter Thiel's book Zero to One. Who you know, Peter Thiel mm-hmm. created PayPal, mm-hmm. was an investor in Facebook. Peter Thiel basically says, you know, find the niche where you can be a monopoly, and that's how you win. Yeah, and then you scale that. And and it sounds like that's what John Stewart did. Well, less John himself than a couple of executives at Comedy Central who should really get credit. Doug Herzog, who's still there at Viacom, was president of Comedy Central at the time. Michelle Gainless, whose title exact back then exactly I don't remember. But the Kilbourne show uh, originally was on at eleven. 30 at night. So it was going head to head with Letterman and Leno and couldn't compete. Right. And Bill Maher left Comedy Central and they shifted it to 11 o'clock so that they were going up against local newscasts instead of the big guys in late night. So that came to help Jon Stewart as well. Um, and the other thing. You, well, why did that help Jon Stewart? Because there was no comedy shows on nationally at 11 o'clock at night. Okay. You know, there was, he had even less, com- his competition was the late local news, not Letterman, Leno. Uh, you talking about John Stewart or, or Bill Maher? Uh, primarily Kilborn, then, then John Stewart. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the other point you make there is something that was really brought home to me in a smart way by James Ponowazek, who was for years Time Magazine's TV critic, now the New York Times um, TV critic, wrote a lot of smart things about The Daily Show over the years. But he talked about how The Daily Show and Jon Stewart 
anticipated in many ways exactly the kind of uh, niche appeal that, that you're touching on, that what we've seen over the last 15, 20 years as the major networks have lost audience, as cable and the internet have come on uh, the scene and, and taken over essentially, is that uh, appealing to that interest group, the narrower interest group, rather than appeal to everybody across the board, is often a lot more successful. And John, in an intuitive way, did that. It wasn't something he set out to do. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away, and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. 
So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Let me play the devil's advocate for a second because sometimes when you go for the smaller audience and you lose, you lose badly. <laughs> so, so a great example being Al Gore's, or uh, was it Al Gore or Al Franken, the, the, the radio network that Al Franken- Air America. Like, yeah, Air America. Right. So they, they tried to have that point of view too. And Al Franken is a funny guy. Tremendous. I mean, his books yeah. are, are great. Saturday Night yeah. Live, he was great. I don't know if he's still funny as a senator, <laughs> but- um, uh, that was the most boring radio network to, I ever listened to. Right. So, like, he couldn't compete with the, um, you know, for better or for worse, the Howard Stearns, the Rush Limbaugh's, the, the people with extreme points of view on the right. Uh, you know, he. What 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 separated John Stewart out from Air America? Uh, probably timing for one thing. Second, and maybe more what important. Do you, mean? you know, Air America. I forget exactly when they debuted, but they might have been a little ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. You know, John coming on, uh, coming in as host in 99-2000 was perfectly suited for the bizarreness of what turned out to be the George W. Bush-Al Gore campaign and recount. 
I think also John Stewart's style is a little bit is it's not as fervent as like an Al Franken or exactly. a Exactly. Exactly. And that's where I was He would be like perplexed on the screen more. Yes. He had a more of a connection and this is something Liz Winstead says in the book that John became sort of the voice of the audience, which was stumped or perplexed or horrified by what was going on in the political world. Uh, that, the Air America folks, they came at it, you know, rightly because of who and what they were trying to do. They came at it with much more of a political agenda. Um, John, for John, and, you know, there's endless debates about this, and it changed over time somewhat. John cared about it being funny first and foremost, not pushing a uh, political line. Right, I think I think the first and foremost is, is important because I think Al Franken wanted to be funny too, but also was pushing an agenda. For, I think that was his first, was the agenda. Yes. Because he saw this p- possible future in politics in front of him. I'm just guessing. I don't know. And then, but um, w- with John Stewart too, you said something uh, uh, that was interesting, which is that he was the voice of the audience. In, in some ways... What made him funny here is he he let the show be funny rather than himself be funny. So so he would outsource kind of the comedic elements to like a Steve Carroll or a Stephen Colbert. You know, kind of these the initial newscasters in the field. Right. Steve Carroll would be clueless, right. reporting on something very important, and John Stewart would again be just the voice Correct. of the audience. Yeah. Like, wait, Steve, are you sure you really mean that? <laughs> and then let Steve Carroll be right. funny. Yeah, and this uh, and. Colbert, B, Carell, Oliver, but particularly earlier as folks talk a good deal in, a, in the book about how John gave them the space to figure out those characters, those correspondent characters for themselves. Um, and, you know, they came out of improv backgrounds, which was hugely helpful to what they were trying to do. All of them. I think, I think all of them came out of, like, Second City, basically, or the Upright Citizens Brigade. Exactly. And, you know, John, over the years, took a greater hand in constructing the field pieces. But early on, he let those guys... And there's a story I love. This is a real turning point in the life of the show, both in it getting attention in the outside world and internally finding the tone that John wanted. Um, Steve Carell uh, did a famous piece on the Straight Talk Express bus with John McCain in the 99 campaign. And he asked a series of really softball questions, you know, what kind of tree would you be, that kind of thing. And McCain, who's got a sense of humor, plays along. And then Carell asks a a policy question. He says, you know, uh, you're a strident opponent of pork barrel spending, yet when you had the uh, Senate Commerce Committee, you dedicated more money to individual districts and pork barrel projects than anyone in history. And McCain freezes. There's a real deer-in-the-headlights moment which Carell bursts by saying, oh, I don't even know what those words mean, and they go back to laughing. Two things about that I found really interesting. Carell and the producer, Nick McKinney, uh, brother Mark McKinney, if you want to get into you know the trivia weeds uh, from Kids in the Hall. Okay. And anyway, <laughs> McKinney and Carell found that question in Time Magazine on the way to the shoot. So as much preparation as they put into it, it was a last-minute thing that ended up being a turning point in the life of the show. And the tone part of it is that it was a mix of journalism and comedy that nobody else had really nailed before in late night, that they could 
uh, get access and and put politicians on a spot in a way, but then had to pull back from it because they were essentially a comedy show. Well, okay, in that part, I I highlighted that exact story in the book. Um, because what if he did not pull back from it? So when he, so obviously it's really funny. Like ah, I don't even know what yeah. those words, words mean anyway. And that's on camera. I assume I yeah. I, don't, I didn't oh, yeah. see the episode. I just read yeah, it in yeah. the book. Um, what if he didn't pull back from it? What if he said this is uh, uh, this is a serious question? That's kind of funny too. Not, it is maybe not as funny. Was there a, was this a humor decision or a or a show decision or a political decision? Uh, in the moment, it was Carell's decision. It's his. Improv skills. Because I want to know the answer to that question. Exactly. Uh, more uh, big picture, it was a, a show decision that, you know, they weren't a gotcha show. They they weren't journalism. They never were going to be. But I feel like Jon Stewart of, uh, in the later years did become a gotcha sure. show. And, and he would well, find the humor more—he would be— he would be more angered by the hypocrisy rather than just like try to make it into something funny. Yeah, and that's an evolution in the in the life of the show. And in John, you know, he talked to me about how you know just ingesting all this uh, cable news and political hypocrisy over the years, you know, it builds up in your system. If you if you care, if you think deeply about this stuff, it makes you mad. And over the years, as the tragedies built up. Uh, he became, uh, not that he was ever guarded, but he became less reluctant to just express that full out. So, so okay, so that was one key evolution, which is that suddenly The Daily Show was recognized enough to have access to even ask questions to McCain. Right. And you had talents like uh, Steve Carell and, and, and Stephen Colbert and, and so on, uh, uh, you know, use their intelligence to create this interesting comedy uh, and John Stewart kind of again almost outsourcing the comedy to them while he was the voice of the audience what would you say is the next evolution uh you know that once they're on the the radar of both the political and uh, world and the political media world having gotten access to some of those people John uh, kind of backpedaled from it he realized, that uh, getting interviews with politicians, though they continued to do that over the years, and media figures was less interesting than uh, standing back and having a little distance. So they uh, happened upon in some ways because they didn't have access initially in the 2000 conventions in, in Los Angeles and Philadelphia. They thought, all right, we'll just get some uh, background footage stock background footage of crowds or monuments or whatever, and we'll project that on green screen, and we'll have the correspondence instantly, you know, they can be in Baghdad or they can be in Austin, Texas. And they realized that they could uh, punch at people in all sorts of ways by not having them right in front of them. And John thought that was freeing, you know, that they weren't chasing people for access. Um, they were just pretending that they had access. So as opposed to like, let's say, uh, a Letterman or a Leno or now a, a Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon, where a lot of the show is about who you can get on. Like, you know, Jennifer Lawrence has a new movie coming out. Let's get Jennifer Lawrence on. And then you then you have to be careful about how much you make fun of the situation because you need the next guest. Exactly. And, you know, John, uh, yeah, he cared about ratings and he, he wanted to talk to... Uh, 
powerful people and, you know, over the years had a real parade of them on the show. Barack Obama on seven times. Yeah, and, you know, from their end, from the politicians' end, you know what's going on there. You know, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart had one of the most uh, politically engaged younger male audiences that a lot of politicians have trouble reaching, you know, so they wanted to go on The Daily Show, you know, whether it was a campaign year or in between, to try to reach those folks. And and, that, and on the one hand, you can argue, oh, a, pre- uh, a president or a presidential candidate going on a comedy show is a little bit frivolous, but there was a precedent with Bill Clinton doing the sacks on uh, Arsenio, the Arsenio Hall. Hall. Right. So yeah. he kind of opened the, the gates for that. Yeah. So, you know, the next sort of turning point, I guess, would be in 2004, where the show's been winning Emmy Awards now, right, for several years. The show's been getting great ratings. The show's been getting great press coverage. And uh, oh, and, and I have a question about sure. this year. So, so people were, he, he, he was in a big transition point, um, and a lot of, you know, writers were joining or, or pitching. Um, what what would it you you would say a writer would submit a packet of stories mm-hmm. and I'm just curious selfishly from the point of view of someone who who is a, a fan of comedy likes it and sort of envious of all the people who who grew up working in it. Um, what does that mean? What does a packet of a submission packet look like for the Daily Show back then? Yeah, I mean it's stayed fairly consistent over the years. What they would do if somebody was interested in applying to write for the Daily Show, they would write five or six um, segments that they thought would fit on The Daily Show. Like what's of their an example own, segment? Of their own choosing. I mean, the, you, me, whoever was applying, you know, they would say, okay, or they wouldn't even, The Daily Show wouldn't even give them this direction at this point. You, the writer, would, you know, do a five-minute uh, spec segment about, uh, you know, Trump having a meeting with Kanye West, okay? And you'd do another one about, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton walking through the woods and bumping into people, you know, after she's lost. So you would try to find things that you could see working on the show. And if the writers and producers thought you'd done a decent job, they would then, The Daily Show would then, in the next round, give you, the applicant, uh, two or three topics, okay? You know, write about um, uh, the war in Syria. Um, And here's uh, all the clips and all the written research material that we might use for a segment. But you have 24 hours now to turn this around. Because those might become real segments. Exactly. But to try to simulate as closely as possible what it meant to what it means to be a writer on the show that stuff you know you show up at nine o'clock in the morning and you have to have turned it around by four o'clock in the afternoon the same day so your second packet would be two or three of those uh, subjects that the daily show producers gave you along with the backup material and then you had 24 hours to turn it in and so, so okay, so 2004, transition. Yeah, oh, to finish that, you know, so The Daily Show's picking up all this momentum and people are saying they're the greatest thing in comedy and late night and so on. And uh, not that John kidded himself that he was going to sway any election ever, but the fact that Bush had screwed up the Iraq war to that point and 
Kerry still lost hit them hard at the Daily Show. Like, oh, <laughs> uh, a lot of people still don't think the way we do. And again, John found that freeing. That, but, but also, he didn't want to. I mean, he made fun of John Kerry also. Like, yes, he didn't want to have a hundred. Like, again, it's different from Air America. He didn't want to have a hundred percent. We believe in this point of view. Right. Though the interview he did with Kerry in the studio that year during the 2004, cam- 2004 campaign was a notorious swing and miss that John admits to me and everybody else he should right. have been tougher on Kerry. But Kerry losing, Bo- Gore, uh, excuse me, Bush being around for another four years um, really sort of energized John uh, to take things on uh, more f- in a more full-throated uh, policy way. You know, they at that point had seen four years of the sort of Bush uh, propaganda spin operation um, and were kind of uh, angry that they had to deal with another four years of it. Right, and it, it seemed like at that point was when they, and technology is sort of catching up where they can kind of take video clips really quickly from multiple stations, edit them together, turn them around, so the hypocrisy was more underlined. So rather than John just simply saying, these guys said this, these guys said this, these guys said this, they're actually showing it over and over again, and that was funny. Yeah, you touched on a piece that ran in 2003 called Bush versus Bush, where they assembled video clips of candidate Governor George W. Bush versus now President George W. Bush talking about intervention and nation building and, and, you know, Iraq and, you know, just direct contradictions, you know. And in those days, it took them six weeks and stacks and stacks of VHS tapes to piece that together. Um, Eventually, one of the producers said, hey, there's these things called TiVo. We, We really should buy some. And they and they did, and that sped things up to one uh, degree. What was interesting, even now, is the technology has evol- evolved to something, uh, a, a um, software a company called Snapstream that's essentially, you know, Google mixed with a, a VCR. You can punch in a phrase, and it'll instantly fo- find you a dozen clips of some politician. Uh, I wonder how they, I mean, now it seems like they get like 30 clips one after the other, They're in, and then they edit that yeah. together into one Well, they, I mean, they anticipated in some ways that technology and, mm-hmm. and improvised it on their own, um, and it caught up with them in about 2010 is when Snapstream came out online for The Daily Show. But the, the Bush versus Bush segment was funny because not, so, so essentially, like you were saying, it showed Governor Bush saying one thing about isolationism and we're not here to nation build, and then President Bush saying we're going to nation build right. in Iraq. So just, so again, John Stewart could have pointed that out as hypocrisy, but that wouldn't have been funny. And, and... Um, it would have been too strident. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I read in one book, um, maybe it was the the Hidden Tools of Comedy. I don't know if you if you've looked at that book, but he describes comedy as sort of the truth but missing something. So you're you're kind of like um, so in this case, the the truth is that the, the the funny part is the fact that these two versions of Bush are saying different things. The part that's missing is. Uh, John Stewart pretending he doesn't know right. that these are right. uh, you know the same person. Yeah. He's acting as if they're two different people. He's missing the knowledge. You're, yeah. you, you take you remove knowledge from the situation, and exactly. that's what made it funny. No, that's that's a hugely important point. And the other thing, which is somewhat related, 
is John and key people early on, like Ben Carlin, who was head writer and then executive producer, David Javerbaum, head writer, then executive producer, as, as good as they are as writers of jokes, always remember they were remembering they were working in a visual medium, you know, that we need a clip to go with this. We need a graphic to go mm-hmm. with this, um, that it can't just be John lecturing at the desk. Um, Although John is a is a a great performer, right? So he had the facial. He's a thousand facial expressions. Like he was able to express a lot of different comedy with his face, right? But he still needed that extra, you know, where a television show, yeah, you know, effect, yeah. And so you know, over the years, he to keep himself amused, you know, to keep trying to do different things, would not do impressions so much as voices and. Uh, famously, these extended parodies of Glenn Beck, where he, you know, put on smart guy glasses and had these wacky uh, diagrams on chalkboards and puppets descending from the ceiling. You know, that was partly just to uh, play on what Beck was doing at the time, but also to keep you know John himself amused. Now, was he? Um... Uh, where where was his skill set as a comedian? Was he talented at impressions? Was he was he writing his jokes? Uh, what well, where where did he come in? He's a he's a tremendous joke writer. Uh, he's terrible at impressions. You know, as Elliot Kalin, uh, who was a longtime staffer, had just about every job you could have from intern to head writer at the show. At one point in the book, Elliot says, "You know, John's voices are." Uh, Southern guy, Italian guy, Jewish guy, other Jewish guy, <laughs> and that's about that's about the extent of his range. So you know the the lameness of John's voices and impressions in and of itself became a joke that he would play around with. Well, well, his main skills are as a writer and as a rewriter, and this is something I don't know if it comes through in the book. And it sounds like uh, I'm patting myself on the back or something, but. The show we all saw for 22 minutes a night on TV was funny and smart and really polished because you had all the clips and all the correspondence. In some ways, the better, to me, more interesting show took place in a windowless room in the hour between rehearsal and taping. Hmm. They would do rehearsal to an empty studio just to crew members. John would run through all the bits, uh, cross out things he didn't think worked, ask for different clips. Then they'd go into this windowless room, and John, on some nights, would rewrite fifty to seventy-five percent of the script on the fly. Well, well, that comes through actually quite a bit in the book. And um, there's one uh, note where one of the writers, in between rehearsal and the performance, apologizes to John Stewart because the rehearsal is so bad. And John Stewart says, "What am I?" And and the writer said, "A professional." And John's like, "That's right, I'm a professional." And he would go in there and rewrite. So. It's very interesting he brought up that word professional because I just interviewed uh, for this podcast another writer, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote a book called Turning Pro about what it means to be a professional, no matter what your profession, but for him it was as a writer. What is, what is a professional for, for Jon Stewart? Wow. Uh, to him, it was you know somebody who didn't get distracted, who kept the focus on the core elements of the show, you know, that it had to be funny, that it had to be factual, you know, that um, there's a researcher who I describe in the book, a guy who's brilliant, who's been there from the Kilbourne days, is still there now with the Trevor Noah show, 
um, you know, who says that on his tombstone he wants it to read, the jokes don't matter if the facts are wrong. Is that Alex? Uh, Cl- Adam Chodakov. Yeah, Ad- Adam, yeah, yeah, brilliant guy. Apparently and, he had the, the super memory for like, oh, I heard Bush say this five yeah, years earlier. he's a beautiful mind kind of guy. Um, and John very much was of that philosophy and, and ethos, ethos as well. Well, well, you 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 bring up a great point about points of view versus comedy. So there was one time, uh, I think it was John Stewart saying this, or maybe you wrote this. I, I forget uh, which voice this was in in the book. Uh, 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 Newt Gingrich falling, they could maybe make a joke about, right? But there's no point of view. It's not about anything. Exactly. And you know, and, and Newt Gingrich, a random Republican, could have been a Democrat too. Um, but John Stewart needed that point of view to to to. Combine that with the funny. Yeah, and and he and everybody else uh, are plain that they didn't find that every night. You know, there were lots of nights they failed, but that was always the goal. And to go back to the professional point for one second, the other element that was crucial in John's makeup as a human being, but in his uh, agenda setting at the show, was that however much external praise they got, however many awards they won. Uh, that stuff, in John's view, went away very quickly. That you, he, and the show had to stay focused on, did we do what we thought was the best possible show we could do tonight? And, and, and you control your intention, but you can't control a reaction. Do you think, do you, think uh, do you believe that there is such a thing as fear of success? Wow, my my psychology credentials have expired. Um, I'm not Are you equipped. A psychologist? No. <laughs> All right, good. No, no. I, was, I had a lot more questions. Yeah, for you no. <laughs> I'm not equipped to answer that. I, as a as a person, sure. I I can't back it up with any Be, kind of because I imagine like going into an Emmys and and doing a show that's of that quality and then winning awards. That could be pretty scary because then you've got to be better. You've got to. You've got and John Stewart. It sounds like he was able to reinvent himself to be better. So he wasn't just at first. Again, he was doing kind of the news in a funny way. Then he was uh, exposing the hypocrisy of yeah. of the people involved in the news in a, in a funny way. Then he was. And then I think the next reinvention occurred in two thousand nine when okay now we've got Barack Obama. So he then started focusing on the hypocrisy of media itself, yes. which uh, was an interesting turn. Yeah, I mean, and it, it was reactive to what was going on in the world, and certainly uh, the Republicans and Fox News trying to uh, obstruct Obama at every turn. You know, that became a, a major narrative at The Daily Show. But, um, you know, John, yeah, while he talks about uh, trying to put aside all that external feedback and praise, uh, you know, don't kid yourself. He's got an ego. He's in show business. He cares about this stuff. The fact that he had a voice in the discussion, and particularly when you get to 2009, the Obama White House cared what Jon Stewart was saying, both as a marker of what they thought, you know, liberal opinion was out there in the world and as a driver of that opinion. Um, So, John, you know, used that small influence narrowly in only a couple of instances, but he was well aware and he enjoyed that he was being listened to at at the highest levels. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I remember from the point of view of 
so so I in the financial crisis, I would speak regularly with Jim Cramer from thestreet.com and and CNBC, obviously. And uh, I remember that day when Jim Cramer went on The Daily Show. And I had talked to Jim earlier, and then I had talked to him again at 3 in the morning that night over text. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, Jim's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going on. We're going to have fun. And then he goes on, and Jon Stewart just eviscerates him. And I don't even think... Look, I think John was kind of dead on in terms of this is the voice of America being outraged at the voice of financial punditry. He might not have gotten everything accurate, and I think J- I, I think Jim could have defended himself a little better. I think he just sort of like uh, lay down and, and let John hit him, which infuriated John even more. <laughs> that that could be. I mean, I think I think Jim was there to to play nice, right. as hey, we're both people who you know have succeeded in our industries let's be nice to each other right but um i i think you know jim had for years dedicated himself to trying to help people out financially no question he, he just had we were everybody was wrong during the financial crisis it wasn't anyone's it might have been politicians fault or you know there's lots of places to blame but it probably wasn't some tv show on cnbc's fault yeah there's there's a lot of threads there it's uh a couple of points. It's fascinating to me. I was talking about how much over the years structure John created at The Daily Show. Um, you know, beyond just uh, we have a meeting at nine o'clock and we have another meeting at noon and scripts are due at two and rehearse at four. I mean, there's that sort of skeleton schedule that you needed to have and enforce. But the larger, you know, everything's got to have a point of view, everything's got to have a vision. Um, but within all that, he left a lot of room for uh, luck and initiative and improvisation. Um, it always, it fascinated me that as much as they were recording day in, day out on TiVo, they also depended in a lot of their most what became most famous segments on producers and writers just stumbling across stuff. Like I mean, what? Well, uh, there was a bit where Sean had about Sean Hannity um, using uh, a mislead, totally misleading crowd shot to make it look like Glenn Beck's rally on the mall in Washington. I mean, they used a piece of footage from a totally different rally to make it look like it was a, and that was something that Elliot Kalin just happened across watching CNN one afternoon on his own. Another producer who shall remain nameless liked to uh, uh, get high on Saturday nights and just watch hours of Hannity. <laughs> and, and out of that came a bunch of the bits that they did about Sean Hannity. And well, What were some bits? Like, What was a funny bit? Uh, the Hannity ones are escaping me, but the point that I'm coming back to was the, more, the most damning piece of videotape that they used against Kramer during the studio interview was from his street.com show. Oh, I, I remember I was standing outside the room when he was filming that that one. That was the one with um, uh, uh, a friend of mine who, who I won't name. He was, he was interviewing Jim, and Jim was talking about how hedge funds would, you know, somewhat manipulate the markets. He wasn't saying necessarily he was... It was, a, it was a gray area he was talking about, yeah. but John took the specific points that really seemed the most damning right. and and played it. Yeah. And uh, I think Jim really was caught off... It was the deer in headlights thing. Yeah. But, but now John wasn't backing off. Like, there was no more backing off in The Daily Show. Right. And that was a, a piece of tape that 
one of the writers who just decided, oh, I'm going to, you know, go fumbling around uh, with Google and see what I can find, came across. Um, it wasn't some mandated, you know, search for we've got to assemble every Jim Cramer clip for the past five years. Right. And they would regularly just stumble across things that ended up becoming good daily show bits. So it's great then. So essentially what John did was it's almost like this Andy Warhol factory. Like he was a talented artist slash comedian, but he... Who was very much in charge. Very much in charge, but he had uh, immense talent around him, for, ranging from Ben, ben Carlin, who was his head writer, and, and, and then, I guess, executive producer. Right. And then, um, of course, the Steve Carrolls, the Stephen Colberts, then later Ed Helms. So he had all these talents, and he sort of... Where do you think he learned... It's, it's not an easy management skill to let all of these super talented people who could just as easily do your job, let them do their thing. Yeah. How do you think he, was that a skill he had or did he have to learn it the hard way or? Yeah, a lot of it appears to be innate. Uh, a lot of it he, he talks about comes from how he saw other people being treated on shows he worked on early in his career, how he was treated by uh, either network executives or executive producers, and you know, trying to do the opposite when it was him who was in charge. So it seems like it seems like the opposite, and this is really interesting. Just as a, a discussion on management, it seems like the the correct thing to do in in management, at least in this case, and, and it seems to work in many cases, is cultivate your talent so that they're so they, they they realized that their talent is important to you as opposed to their loyalty to your show yeah so like steve carroll carell uh his talent was such that he eventually needed to go into movies and then do the office right stephen colbert's talent was such that he eventually needed to have his own show right. and, and john stewart really pushed him when colbert had doubts yes and this uh, plays into all of what you're talking about is that when People wanted to go off and do other things. Uh, performers wanted to do guest appearances on other shows or just wanted to leave and take their own show. John didn't stand in their way. I mean, he was very much encouraging of, that's great. You've, you've done good work here. You know, go and make your mark somewhere else. So he wasn't holding on to people beyond their desire to be at the show, which sets a good chemistry, I think. Was there ever a time, though, when maybe, I mean... It, it, if you look at it in retrospect, it looks like The Daily Show had just had this straight-up rise without any kind of volatility along the way. Like, it didn't, it didn't seem to ever fall. I mean, it won Emmys 13 seasons in a row, um, so or 13 years in a row. So if you think if he wasn't the straight-up rise, he would have been as free and easy, like, hey, yeah, you go off here because I know new talent will be coming in? Yeah, probably not. You know, uh, it's a what-if, but probably not. Though he did... John came back to two things over and over again during his years at the show and in talking to me, and I'm going to paraphrase one of them badly, which is that he always felt in management the key thing was to have people invested in what they were doing without feeling ownership over it. That, what does that mean? That they cared, they put everything they had into it, and then they let it go in the writing, the producing, the performing, that the collective was more important than I wrote that piece uh, or I performed that bit on the air. So how would he deal with the fact that, you know, essentially it was 
uh, the Daily Show with John Stewart. So right. his name is on was, the building on the show. Yeah. So so how would he motivate people to feel invested? He because you can't you can't get people to feel invested like hey invest in this so that my career could be better. Right. Like how did he? How did he kind of ascribe meaning to what these people were doing? You know, it sounds corny, but in just day-to-day ways, you know, telling people, I'd love that, you know, you did a great job on that. Just the way he conducted himself uh, day in, day out. You know, he was the star of the show, no doubt about it, but he stood in the lunch line with everybody else every day. Uh, there was not a lot of pretension about the way he conducted himself. Was there ever now, this, any... there became a, a fame, a really internally difficult thing um, in 08, excuse me, 07, 08, there was a Writers Guild strike. Mm-hmm. Not just The Daily Show, but across right. the TV and film industry. And to that point, John had really considered himself one of the guys or gals or, you know, we're all in this together, we're a family, we're a team. And to some extent, the writers were saying at The Daily Show, but beyond that, of course, uh, no, you know, you're the boss and we have some grievances here about pay and medical care and things like that that we think should be better. And John was initially very defensive and angry about that, that he thought, not that he's opposed to unions in theory or in practice, but that, you know, we'd all had this great run for all these years by uh, all being in it together. And now you're saying we're not all in it together, that there's selfish motives or people have to look out for themselves. He ultimately came to, to realize they were right, <laughs> that they probably should be paid more and that they needed to uh, to make this point and what his real problem was was all the other staffers the 75 or so people in the building who were not writers who were not getting paid so john and here's another example of you know how do you invest people and make them feel part of it you know john went into his own pocket to pay a lot of those staffers over the course of the strike Mm. all right okay that's interesting so so that's obviously extremely motivating and then the flip side of it is he also, you know, goes on the lunch line. He's wearing a T-shirt and jeans or whatever, khakis. Uh, uh, there's also this higher meaning to the show, which is we're about exposing the hypocrisy in the media. Right. And no other show is doing this. So we're kind of the the source. Yeah. Of the, we, we have this higher meaning, this higher function, almost as kind of this fourth branch of checks and balances in the government where checks where the checks and balances on that fourth branch. Yeah. So, and so, that's an interesting thing that you can't really calculate it or, or write it down, and, you know, a formula. But people at the show talk to me about how, you know, they didn't feel self-important, like we're speaking truth to power, man, you know, we're doing it. But they realized the show had an important voice, that they felt they were doing something more, not that they're running down, you know, their friends who wrote for Kimmel or who wrote for Leno or or, uh, Fallon or any of those people, because they're really talented, but that they felt like The Daily Show had weight in the culture that a lot of other places didn't. So that's what, and Jason Ross, who wrote some of those CNBC bits, um, who was at the show as a writer a long time, 
talked to me about how hard it was to accept, to learn to accept that John was going to rewrite, you know, much of your material. But the payoff was the show was almost always better when it, it got taped that night. And, you know... So you couldn't really resent. Yeah, and that it had a, a life in the culture that you couldn't have gotten anywhere else. So, so here's a question I always wonder about extreme successes like Jon Stewart. And I also wonder this about, you know, David Letterman, Jay Leno, many, many people. Uh, after a few years, let's say after like five or six years, he's already won a couple of Emmys. He, he maybe he had a $10 million year at one point. I don't know what his financial arc was. Uh, at what point do you say, hey, I'm not going to, like, he? that's hard work putting on a 22-minute TV show every single day. That's like 5 in the morning till 10 at night of work. Yep. And he did it for 16 years, and he was already probably closer to the beginning than the end. He was already fabulously wealthy. At what point do you say, uh, okay, I did it, I'm going to try something new? Instead, he just kept doing this. Like, why do you think he kept going with it? Uh, I think as hard as the work was, he was having a lot of fun, you know? He'd surrounded himself with smart, interesting people. He was making a show every night and getting, you know, enormous feedback, both from this positive feedback from the studio audience and the TV audience that he had not ever found anywhere else in his professional life. You know, he was being listened to in the White House. You know, it's hard to hard to trade that kind of gratification or influence. So, so let me ask you this. Like, obviously, you know, one of the reasons or maybe the main reason you wrote this book is you've, you've known Jon Stewart a long time. You follow The Daily Show through its entire arc. You write about TV and media. Um, it, it, for someone listening to this who doesn't necessarily have that type of meaning and influence in their in their life— and they're wondering themselves, why do I keep going to work? What what can they pull from this? How can they find, and maybe this is a stretch, like, you know, you, you really intended to write about the history of The Daily Show, not write something which is going to, people are going to be motivated by Jon Stewart's story, but how can someone be motivated by, by what Jon Stewart did with The Daily Show? You know, it, it's not a sure thing. It's certainly not a promise, but I think the truth of what he knew early on or believed and continues to believe that if you're doing good work, it'll eventually pay off. I mean, that's hugely sort of important. Compounds. Yeah, that's if you're doing something you care about and doing it with all your heart and uh, energy, that that will eventually, you know, uh, be paid back. And and having a point of view. Right. Uh, as opposed to just doing something silly. Yeah. Um, I think it also reminds me of uh, Harold Ramis's comment, uh, st- uh, I stood next to the smartest person in the room. And Harold Ramis obviously stood next to Bill Murray, mm-hmm. and they created Caddyshack and Ghostbusters and, and so on, and Stripes and all, all these great movies. Um, what else? Uh, cultivate the talent around you. Yeah, so Al- them allow credit. them the freedom, give them the credit, um, you know, to to care about uh, your internal sense of what's good and bad as opposed to an external sense. I mean, we've all had bosses or we all have to, you know, meet uh, uh, some kind of marks or standards or deadlines, you know, you're not totally autonomous usually in your professional life. Um, but John always tried to listen to what he thought 
was good or bad, not the critics, not the reviews, not the award shows. I, I think also he um, he was good at reinventing. Mm-hmm. So he took a, an initial show with the lo- local news, started putting a more national spin, and then again, the ways we discussed it, he seemed to reinvent pretty successfully every four or five years. Yeah, and he his, he's got a couple of repeated metaphors in, in his experience of the show. He talks about the show being somewhat like a Mexican restaurant, okay, where we have these beans and we have this rice and we have this chicken and we have this avocado. And if we put it in this uh, soft thing and wrap it up, we can call it a burrito. And if we put it in this crunchy thing, we can call it a taco. Um, so he kept trying to find new ways the rally to uh, restore fear and or sanity was both a reaction to what Glenn Beck had done uh, and the paralysis in you know Washington government at that point in 2010. But it was also John just trying a different way to perform, you know, to take the show outside of the studio and see what it would be like. And then how did how did John himself improve his skills? Like, did he still try to do stand up comedy in front of audiences? Was he watching a lot of comedy? I mean, obviously he was watching his own show and all the great comedians there. But how did he continue to improve? You know, uh, he read all the books that the authors came on the show to talk about. You know, so he learned about the world and uh, different ways um, through the guests. He really cared about what they were saying and what they could bring. Uh, he did very little stand-up during his years at the show. I guess the mo- majority or bulk of it would be when he would be at a charity event and do you know ten minutes yeah. of stand-up. White or House something correspondence. Like that. Exactly. Um, and he just—I mean, he had—and this gets back to your other point, I think. Um, he just had sort of a bottomless appetite for news and policy. Elliot Kalin, again, uh, one of the head writers, was talking to me about how in the later years, often the writers would come in in the morning and say, oh, you know, Obama lied about this or McConnell did this ugly thing. And John would come in and be freshly outraged. Not that he's naive, but John seemed to have a reservoir of uh, outrage and disgust at politicians doing the wrong thing that drove the show from beginning to end. And And, and it's hard to tell somebody have that same kind of core uh, value or or outrage, but it's really what propelled John. So how would he, like, let's take an an Obama situation. How would he turn that outrage into comedy? Because that seems like a challenge. Like, it, it... uh, look, we can both go on our Facebook feeds and see outrage all day long. Yeah, but it won't be funny. Right, <laughs> it's just a bunch of people spitting at each other. Right, how do you, how do you turn outrage into comedy? Uh, here's sort of a long-winded answer that leads to one really good uh, field piece they did. You know, John over the years felt like, okay, I'm going to be making jokes about the war. I'm going to be making uh, points about. Uh, government policy. I should really know about it as much as I can. So we would read books. But he also started quietly, no fanfare, no cameras, no nothing. He would go to Veterans Administration hospitals and talk to soldiers about how's the government treating you? You know, how's the war being conducted? So he really got to know those guys and see up close how badly the bureaucracy was uh, 
treating soldiers who'd come home from Iran and Afghanistan and other places. Iraq, not Iran. We haven't invaded Iran yet. Uh, <laughs> give us a couple of years. Um, so, so, so again, though, even more outrage. So, how do you convert that to comedy? Yes. Um, so, disabled soldiers, limbless. Yeah, not, not, being a, not a right. laugh. Not a laugh riot. <laughs> right. But he would do some desk pieces. But he also greenlit a piece. Samantha B did. Uh, with a producer named Miles Kahn, who now works at Sam B's Full Frontal show, where they made a like eight or nine minute mock uh, detective movie, where they took one veteran and tried to chase trace his paperwork through the Veterans Administration, and it was funny because they kept running into these ridiculous, you know, roadblocks. But it was also moving because it gave you a sense of just how much this guy was trying to go through to get medical care. And that ended up shaming the Obama administration, the Veterans Administration, and changing a lot of those rules and regulations. And so they actually did, like, it, it, this, this piece did affect change? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was one element that came up in other pieces John did where, you know, you could only go to a Veterans Administration uh, office for treatment that I think was something like uh, 90 miles in a straight line from where you lived. But nobody can generally drive a straight line. So if it was 92 miles on the freeway, you know, because you had to take uh, a circuitous route, you could that, and that was the closest place, you couldn't get care there. And so would he, what would he show? Would he show someone being rejected there? Yeah. And how would they show that? How would they bring and the maps cameras in? And they'd bring graphics into it to just demonstrate the absurdity of it. Huh. That's okay. All right. So that's how you can get uh, yeah, you can some funny of, aspect of it. Yeah. And so, so did you ever see him? So he affected change in maybe government bureaucracy. Did you ever see him affect change in media hypocrisy? So, like, let's say um, if there was like Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly or Rachel Maddow or whoever who he felt maybe was not always spinning both sides of the story was just kind of maybe lying or saying only one side of the story. Do you ever see him affect change in any media uh, outlets? Well, I mean, loosely, I, I talk to people like Anderson Cooper, who's a terrific reporter at CNN, who would say that, you know, you were always conscious in the mainstream media world of not doing things that would get you made fun of on The Daily Show. Huh. And inevitably you did, but... Um, so that was one sort of loose effect. So there might be in everybody's mind, uh-oh, The Daily Show's watching this. Exactly. Um, you know, I think he was, he and the show were a whole lot less successful in moving, you know, the mainstream TV media in particular away from, you know, their infatuation with the horse race, you know, the day-to-day -day of campaigns. Mm. Um, but it's hard to point... Yeah, to specific examples where he he changed media behavior. I think even he would count that as a because uh, they had their brands. They couldn't like it's not it's not like suddenly you know uh, Sean Hannity suddenly going to say oh I'm going to be a liberal Democrat now even though I'm on Fox or whatever. Yeah, um, no, that's not happening. So 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 during the course of your career, you've obviously followed all of these people. You followed John Stewart. Did you ever feel like Ah, I'm just covering them. I want to be them. <laughs> like, did you want to ever want to be on the Daily Show or or write for it or? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> you know, in some fantasy world, sure. But one of the experiences of 
reporting and writing this book was I was doing, you know, four or five interviews a day. And in every one of those interviews, I would be reminded how not funny I am because whether it was a writer or a researcher or a performer on The Daily Show, they were just so much quicker and and funnier. Um, no, you know, I guess in the in the looser respect, it's a frustration of journalism. I mean, you you know, if you're a big uh, Times or, or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal or something like that, yeah, you can make an impact in the world. But the rest of us as journalists, we enjoy telling stories, but you know, the kind of impact uh, something like The Daily Show had from time to time, whether it was on Veterans Administration benefits or uh, making the Zadroga bill uh, medical care for first responders permanent. I mean, I'm envious, yeah, of that kind of impact in the in the real world. So, so it's interesting though because you do you do write this book, and um, it's a great book. Thank you. The Daily Show, the book, an oral history. I highly recommend it because of all these things we discussed. Not only was it this amazing platform of talent, but uh, it affected. Uh, how we view the news, it affected how we view late night comedy. It, affected, it shows the the rise of John Stewart and 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 how that kind of talent develops. So it's a, it was an inspiring story to read. Thank you. And you reminded me of an interesting thing. We talked just a second ago about you know did John change the media in any respect? I interviewed a correspondent named Dan Bacadal who was only at the Daily Show for two years, and they were pretty unhappy years <laughs> in his life. And Why? He, uh, in his description, saying why. Yeah, essentially, he kept waiting for a producer or John, and this is in Dan's own account, to explain to him how to do the job, um, that he was too much on his heels and, you know, not uh, seeking out his own subjects, not bringing his own uh, take on the humor, um, and that, you know, it's a very fast moving place where John doesn't have a lot of time for instruction and leading people by the hand. So Dan, anyway, comes and goes in two years, but then has a really interesting perspective, I thought, looking back on what didn't work and why. But he also said that he didn't think that Bernie Sanders would have been possible if not for John Stewart. Now, that's a, a stretch, obviously. There are a lot of things uh, behind Bernie Sanders' support. But what he meant was, and he talks about in the book, that a generation of citizens uh, grew up watching and listening to how Jon Stewart and The Daily Show deconstructed the media and politics. And that a lot of people in their 20s, early 30s, look at the political game through that kind of lens. And I would extend it even a bit further that there's a generation of reporters, again, 20s, early 30s, who grew up watching and listening to The Daily Show. And a lot of them did great work during the uh, Trump-Clinton uh, campaign of calling people on lies and bullshit and you know not sticking to the sort of classic objective reporter perspective. Not that John and The Daily Show was their only influence. A lot of those people are good reporters all by themselves. But I think that's, you know, part of what they grew up with is is how John and the show deconstructed the press and politics. So, so and again, that's part of kind of um, claiming his niche, you know, when he started, as opposed to being that the Big Tent approach of, of a Jay Leno or even of 
uh, a, a potentially a Dana Carvey, sure. you know, who tried to appeal to everyone but wasn't, you know, in the Jay Leno category. Uh, so this is a, a stretch question. So so, so uh, I'll, before I ask this question, <laughs> I'm going to say, please buy the, if you if you ever watch even one episode of The Daily Show, or actually just I'm even inspired by just the management techniques of John Stewart. This is a great book. It's phenomenal the research you did. I I would dread the thought of having to talk to 114, you know, conflicting personalities uh, in order to put together a book in, in six months. So that's, I, I highly commend you for that. So I have a show. It's this podcast. What should I do to to improve it? Now, you've probably only seen this one episode that we're on, but uh, I'm always just curious. Like, well, what should, I've listened how should to, I think? Listen to you talk to our mutual friend, Stephen J. Dubner. Oh, yeah. Uh, many okay, times. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's an know. interview show. It's like an interview format, but I could always play with format. Yes. You know, uh, challenge yourself whenever possible. And again, you know, I sound like I'm kissing ass or, I, you know, I'm, I'm continually referring to the book of John Stewart, uh, the gospel of John Stewart <laughs> or something. But he talked, he talked, and in the book, a lot of the writers talk about, which is more important, John's advice that if you were writing a piece or addressing an issue and you found yourself getting uncomfortable, to steer into that, you know, that if something wasn't working or it was just making you uh, question why uh, the world works this way or, or just um, made you physically discomforted, you should keep pursuing that. Write that into the piece. So, like, what's an example they were trying to figure out a way to do a segment about campus sexual assault. And, uh, you know, not on its face, a laugh riot kind of piece. And the writers who'd been assigned to write it just were really squeamish about trying to make jokes about this deeply sensitive and difficult subject. And what they ended up doing was getting together uh, a group of women, both writers and producers, staffers at the show, to talk among themselves about all the nasty shit they had to put up with in their day-to-day -day lives. And out of that, in, in going deeper into that discomfort, they ended up with a really funny and, and uh, moving, in some ways, piece with Jessica Williams and Jordan Klepper as the correspondents. Um, so that they cited to me as an example of, you know, trying to follow John's instruction that this thing wasn't working, it was making them uncomfortable to work on it, go deeper into that discomfort rather than just walk away from it. Well, it's interesting then, where's the line between a discomfort you should walk away from and a discomfort you should go deeper into? Uh, yeah, and not one that lends itself to, to easy uh, explication or, or formula. Hmm. All right, well, Chris Smith, uh, author of The Daily Show, the book, and oral history. By the way, also, John Stewart did, wrote a great introduction about his own career and what he was facing when he started uh, The Daily Show and, and, and his sense of the accomplishment that it was. Uh, thanks so much for— And for... also about pie. Pie is a very important part of his introduction. Uh, pie? I don't know. <laughs> uh, he, he talks about how his then-girlfriend, now longtime wife, 
essentially uh, talked him into taking the Daily Show job. Uh, oh yeah, they had the pros and cons. Yes, I remember that right? And if John felt that if he took the job, it would mean eating less pie and you know trying to look better on camera, uh, and which he did. He did very <laughs> successfully. You see now also the difference between the time the day he left and now. Yeah, now it's like Letterman too. It's like now he's got the gray beard. Oh, and- but see, I'll tell you this, which was not known as something new in the in the book. Uh, John, John talked to me how about f- for most of the 16 years that he did the show, he had brutal insomnia. He went long stretches where he was getting two, three hours huh. sleep a night. He leaves the Daily Show August 2015. He's slept through the night, eight, nine hours ever since. That's great because it's important for health. Yeah, so. no kidding. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Chris, for joining the show. James, great, it's great fun. time. Thank Thanks. you. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for the James Altucher show and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 